Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood, as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, and joining me, as always, he is the man who played Gil in the animated television series Buzz Lightyear of Star Command, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good, thank you, uh, David, for that shout-out to Gil in uh, Buzz Lightyear Star Command. So this is the the TV series based off of the Toy Story films, right? Yes. The continuing adventures of Buzz Lightyear. You got to have continuing adventures. That's the number one question (laughs) I had when I finished watching Toy Story 1 is what is happening with Buzz Lightyear after, before, you know, whenever uh, in relation to the movie. I know. There is a sort of digestive track of show business. You begin with art at the top. And then as you digest, you come to commerce. And when you get a character like Buzz Lightyear, you have to find continuing adventures to drive that commerce bus all around the block. And and it's a great opportunity. You know, when a lot of people go into acting, they always imagine that they're going to be space people or they're, they're going to be the mummy or Frankenstein or... Romeo and Juliet, and usually you end up like me, just playing <laughs> playing doctors and principals forever. So it's a wonderful opportunity to to get to spread my butterfly wings and fly into the Buzz Lightyear bug lamp. Well, it's, I'm so happy to hear that it was a rewarding experience for you, you to play guilt, which by the way, do you even know what that was? Who's not Gil? a clue. Not a clue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephen, we are living in very challenging times right now as we're recording this. And I assume as you're listening to this, um, we are dealing with a global pandemic. And so things have been pretty challenging. But uh, at the same time, there has been some room for joy as well. Uh, you have recently had your very first grandchild. Isn't that correct? That is correct, David. And you were one of the first people I told. Uh, well, I am honored, and congratulations, or mazel tov, as I believe your people say. <laughs> That's right. And it's a granddaughter, and uh, I've never had—gosh, when was this? I'm, I'm surprised this hasn't come up on the show. About 15 years ago, I got an—oh, because I didn't get the part. About 15 years ago, I got an audition for a part that was only known as Gramps. And I was so insulted by that. I remember I called up my agent and said, what do you mean, Gramps? And you know my problem I have of playing parts that don't have names. That are j- I, I just felt I was too young and vital to play Gramps. But now that I'm old and decrepit with the big target on my back with COVID, I relish the role of Gramps. I, this is what I didn't realize about being a grandfather, David. It is all about the love it is, we are able to give that grandbaby just 
absolute unconditional love. She fills our heart with renewal, with joy, with with love. And Lord Robert, my son, came over with some impromptu babysitting, which is a big ask when a baby's first born to ask somebody to watch a newborn. But they put that baby in my arms and she was asleep. David, have you ever handled a newborn baby before? Has anyone ever given you that trust? Uh, no, I have not, nor would I accept that trust. <laughs> I completely believe that, David. <laughs> anyway, Robert puts the sleeping baby in my arms, and it's like a scene from The Hurt Locker for the you people out there who aren't parents. The sleeping baby is in your arms, and you don't want to do anything to wake it up. So I sat there for two hours, and do you know what the nuclear fuel that kept me going for that two hours of not moving a muscle to wake that baby was, David? What is it, Stephen? Empathy. Empathy. At my advanced age, David, I, when I look in the mirror, I see every age I've been in my life, and I recognize that I was a difficult child. I must have been. And I always wonder if I'd been born a few decades later, what kind of psychiatric drugs my parents would have been advised to give me. And a few decades earlier, I probably would have been put to work in a slaughterhouse or shot. Timing is everything. I remember being full of rage, full of sadness, full of sunlight and joy. My emotions were always too big for my little body. I ran through forest fires for fun. I hunted poisonous snakes by the creek for a sideline. I had no peace, even in my sleep. I, the monster, would come out of my toy closet at night to terrify me. I kept a steak knife under my pillow in case he attacked. My comfort toy was a big stuffed bunny I slept with. I called it Punching Bunny. I used to beat it up all day and hug and kiss it all night. It was the model of an abusive relationship. Punching Bunny had lost an eye and suffered a torn ear from my brutality, but it was its own damn fault. I was a creature of impulse, vague and mysterious, powerful and unpredictable. That was the hell I lived in as a child, and I'm sure it's the hell I inflicted on my parents. Life changed for me when I discovered monster movies. I didn't know why they existed, but I was happy they did. Even though they gave me nightmares, even though on occasion they sent me running to my mother and father for protection. Now I see I loved them because they gave me nightmares. It wasn't the fright I longed for. It was that I could survive the fright. I was happy I lived in a world where there were so many Frankenstein movies. Even though I was very young, I understood that their popularity meant that I was not alone. From Frankenstein to Son of Frankenstein, to Bride of Frankenstein, my personal favorite, I began to see similarities. They all had a monster. In fact, they all had the same monster. They all had a scientist with a hunchback assistant, but it was always a different scientist and occasionally a different hunchback. They all had a chief of police. They all had victims. And they all had townsfolk with torches. I always wanted to be the monster, Maybe because he was the only constant? If not the monster, then the scientist. I admired Dr. Frankenstein. He was industrious, 
I could see the value in having a purpose in life, even if the purpose was stealing brains and bringing the dead back to life. I never wanted to be the little boy. Uh Uh-uh. Even though he lived in a castle, his room was creepy, he never had friends, he never got to play. I never wanted to be the chief of police, even though I liked his mechanical arm. I never wanted to be the victims, obviously. They all seemed like nice enough people, but they had no future. No matter what movie it was, the one person I never wanted to be was the townsperson with the torch. I would rather be the drowned little girl than an angry villager. I hated their violence, their noise. I hated their lederhosen. It's true. Even at the age of five, I had enough fashion sense to know you had to dress for success. Lederhosen and a hat with a feather in it will never get you anywhere, except maybe working at der Wienerschnitzel. In retrospect, with the sophistication of an adult brain, what I hated about the villagers was they were not in control of their time. Their anger was. The thought of getting so worked up over a scientist building a monster that I would get out of bed, light a torch, run up a mountain to burn down a castle, a castle made of stone, by the way, it's unthinkable. The only people who do that are people who have too much energy and not enough life. They have no pets to take care of. No one depends on them. No one looks up to them. The men and women who stormed the Frankenstein castle think they're saving the world, but they aren't. They're actually setting the stage for the end of the world, the civilized world. The world of impulse is the end of law, the end of peace. There's a part in the Jewish daily prayers that I tried to overlook when I was in college. It seemed to be anti-life, or at least anti-I-want-to-be-an-actor, which, which amounted to the same thing back then. The Shema, which is the central prayer of Judaism, has three parts. The first part, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's fine. It was a statement of unity of God, abstract, harmless, has a lot in common with the Cub Scout oath. I will promise to do my best, to do my duty to God and my country, and to obey the laws of the pack. Sidebar. When I was a Cub Scout, I always wondered what the laws of the pack were. I couldn't find them in the handbook. I was ready to follow anything if I had some specifics. None of the grown-ups I asked were able to tell me. I gave up worrying about it. I assumed if I broke a law of the pack, someone would let me know. The second part of the Shema speaks to loving God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your might. Now that sounds like a pretty good thing to do, even though I wasn't sure what any of those words meant. Heart, soul, might. No specific image comes to mind. I assume heart meant passion, soul meant intent, and might meant, what, fighting to save Judaism? Rabbi Schimmel laughed and told me, Stephen, Stephen, no one expects you to take up arms. Mike can mean money. Just contribute to the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah. It's the third part of the Shema where I had to pause. It says you should look at your fringes of your tallit, which is the Jewish prayer shawl, to remember you should not follow your heart or let your eyes lead you astray. What? Not follow your heart? That seemed to contradict the heart, soul, and might clause I had just read. 
I didn't know if that could fit into a worldview I could accept. The reason I came out to California to become an actor was to follow my heart. The reason I fell in love with Beth was following my heart. Then I thought about the villagers in the Frankenstein movies. They were following their hearts when they lit their torches. They would have burned the son of Frankenstein alive if they could have. And I'm sure the leaders of the French Revolution followed their hearts when they rounded up and beheaded men, women, and children. People in the American South followed their hearts when they lynched primarily black men. The Tuskegee Institute recorded 3,446 deaths. It also noted the lynching of 1,297 white men. Women were lynched as well. And these crimes weren't part of a distant past. The last lynching bill was passed in 1968. There are lots of photographs of the horrible crimes. These photographs weren't taken with hidden cameras by law enforcement. No, the murderers brought their cameras. That's how proud they were. They wanted to commemorate the day they followed their hearts. When I was a child, all I did was follow my heart. It usually led me to water moccasins or orange popsicles. I remember Mom telling me in her later years before Alzheimer's robbed us of our time together that she loved me because I was such a happy child. (sighs) I'm glad she felt that way. From my point of view, I was not happy. I was afraid. Fear has an identity crisis. It's one of our most powerful defenses, and it's also considered one of our greatest weaknesses. This contradiction has kept therapists in business for as long as I could remember. It's kept bad governments in power. It's led to greater safety at home, at work, on the road, better food and water, longer lifespans, and about every war I could think of. I suspect the dual nature of fear is a design flaw in the mechanism. Do you overcome your fear to become the real you, or do you listen to your fears to avoid catastrophe? During my 40s and 50s, which I have dubbed the psychiatric era of my life, I heard both. What I never heard from any doctor was the third possibility. Sometimes we compensate by becoming our fear. Halloween is the holiday that honors this transformation, the day we become our favored creature of impulse. My costume was Godzilla, giant lizard that breathed fire when he got angry. Oh, that's perfect for a founding member of the Dangerous Animals Club. The urge to become our fear isn't limited to the holidays. The impulse motivates a wide range of aberrant behaviors from taking drugs to shopping at Neiman Marcus. A partial list includes drinking and driving, not looking at maps to see where you're going, having sex with strangers, getting tattoos, listening to atonal music, eating food made with ghost peppers, and joining the military, as well as becoming religious. Religion has survived for centuries partially because it's given the world a different take on fear. Through its lens, fear can become transcendence. I had an unusual experience in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. I got lost. I didn't take the map they hand out in the lobby, and I figured out how big could a museum be. The answer is big enough you should bring water and a bag of trail mix. I ended up wandering through human history, Egyptian, Etruscan, Assyrian, 
stories of floods, famines, and wars. Overwhelmingly, these were scenes of terror. It was as if the works of art were offered as sacrifices to appease the gods. I made it to the paintings that were inspired by subjects from the Torah, the binding of Isaac. Abraham has tied his son to the sacrificial altar. He's preparing to cut his throat. Abraham is stopped by a messenger from God. In an instant, this moment of great fear is transformed into a covenant with God, the beginning of Judaism. Then I see paintings depicting the plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of the Egyptian army, scenes of death and terror. But what follows is Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, the greatest symbol of the Jewish faith. I pass through halls with art depicting New Testament figures, the torment and crucifixion of Jesus, followed by his miraculous resurrection, the beheading of John the Baptist, the death by arrows of St. Sebastian, the martyrdom of all the saints of the Middle Ages. All of the paintings seemed to reflect the same theme, torture and grace, not as two separate events, but one proceeding from the other, fear as a doorway to salvation. And it seemed the greater the fear, the higher the glory. I can understand the concept of transcendence being built into us. We have a brain that can evaluate. We have a mind that can create stories. Our birthright is we come into the world filled with all of these parts that don't work. We have hands that can't hold, feet that can't walk, a mouth that can't speak. We begin in a state of baffling helplessness And within a few years, we're square dancing. Transcendence. Another difficulty in being human is that once we're old enough to understand, one of the first things we learn is distrust. This isn't going to hurt. It's more for the parent or the doctor than the child. For the child, it all hurts. Transcendence undoes the damage slowly. When I was 12, The Red Bird swimming pool was a regular summer hangout. Mom would slather me up with copper tone and drop me off for a couple hours to work on my sunburn while she did her chores. One day, some of my friends dared me to jump off of the high board. Dares are easy to take when you're still in the shallow end of the pool. I took the challenge. I jumped out of the water, walked with confidence to the three diving boards at the deep end, The two boards on each side were the low boards. They were only three feet above the water. But the board in the middle towered 15 feet over the deep end of the pool. There were apocryphal tales of the boy who dove in and cracked his head on the bottom of the pool, dead. And the fat boy who thought the high board was a joke. He did an intentional belly flop, dead. All of this happened to boys. Girls didn't jump off the high board. It was too dangerous. Everyone said the force of the water on impact could kill a female. I stood at the bottom of the ladder and looked up. That was when I knew this was a mistake. I started shaking. I told myself it was just the natural effects of breeze on a wet body. I started to climb and climb. And I climbed a little more. The board was higher than the roof of our house. This was a terrible mistake. I couldn't feel the bottom half of my body. There were two divers ahead of me. A high school boy tried to do a flip. He failed. Slammed into the water on his back. Horrible. But he survived. Now, 
there was one diver ahead of me. I looked out. My last minutes on earth. I could see the curve of the world. There was South Oak Cliff as far as the eye could see. I could make out the parking lot of T.W. Brown Jr. High. I could see Redbird Mall in the distance. The boy ahead of me ran off the end of the board, flailing like a madman, a comedian. Oh, my turn. I walked to the end of the board. It started to bend under my weight. Oh, God, help me. I was going to die. The human body can't fall from this height and not be broken into bits. I was too scared to walk back. I couldn't even turn around. I lowered myself into a crawling position and tried to execute a 180. That's when I heard some of the first taunts of chicken on the high board. The chant got the attention of more swimmers. Soon the pool was ringing with ridicule. There was a chicken on the high board. And yes, it was true. Because I was that chicken on the high board. Rather than encouraging me to jump, the taunting made it harder for me to move. Now I couldn't crawl. I lowered myself onto my belly and started to inch my way toward the ladder like a slug. The chant was now punctuated with the sounds of chicken clucking and farting noises. The line of wet divers behind me was getting longer, and they were getting angry. Come on, kid, jump! And damn it, I'm freezing! Jump off the damn board! The lifeguard blew his whistle and shouted, Hey, no clowning on the high dive! I'm not clowning, sir, I yelled back. Then get off the board and let the others dive. I can't. Get off the board or you'll be ejected from the pool. I can't. I'm counting to ten. Either jump off the board or come down. One, two, three. I can't. You'll be banned from Redbird if you don't come down. I can't. The older diver behind me said, Kid, just count to three and run off the board. It's not that bad. The lifeguard continued his countdown. Four, five, six, wait, stop, I yelled. I slowly stood up, wait. The jeering from the pool subsided. I'm going to count to three, and then I'm going to jump. Okay, said the lifeguard. Let's do it. I called out, one, one. The divers in line behind me joined in, two. The swimmers in the pool joined in, three. And I didn't move. The pool rocked with boos. Chicken on the high board rang with renewed vigor. I'm going to do it this time, I shouted. You better, shouted the lifeguard, or I'm going to come up there and personally kick your butt out of the pool area. Okay, okay, I'm doing it. One, two, three. And I stood there. Now the people in the pool were laughing and applauding. The lifeguard climbed off of a stand and started walking toward the high dive. The older diver offered more advice. Kid, it's not as bad as you think. Just go in straight. Feet first. You'll be fine. The lifeguard made it to the foot of the ladder of the high board. And I ran as fast as I could off the end. One short moment in space. Then, bam, I hit the water. The lifeguard was waiting for me when I emerged. You okay? he asked. I nodded. Yes, sir. Good, because I never want to see you on that board again. You understand? Yes, sir. I nodded. If I even think you're walking to the diving boards, I'm kicking your butt out of the pool area. 
Yes, sir. And he walked back to his perch. But I didn't feel chastised. I was exploding with joy. It was a moment of unexpected triumph. I demonstrated valor. I dog paddled back under the rope with floats to the shallow end of the pool, joined my friends. They all shook their heads. Pitiful, said Roy. Embarrassing, said John. How does the field be, huge chicken? Well, not so bad, John. Not so bad. I laughed as another rush of joy overwhelmed me. Being banned for life from the high board? But I did it. John, I did it. I jumped. It was transcendence. It was the first time I felt the terror and the subsequent miracle. From that moment on, I became a new version of me, one who jumps off the high board. My ban from life lasted one week. The next Saturday, I jumped off the high board at Redbird 50 times. I even went in headfirst and once attempted a flip. I swam back to the shallow end, and a strange little boy was hanging on the rope with floats. He said, You weren't scared to do a flip off the high board? No, I said. Well, I heard someone froze up there, and they had to call the fire department. I don't believe that, I said. And I smiled. And through some power greater than myself, terror had become miracle, and I had become legend. Did you say that you've been searching for a place you've never been? Well, here it is. Here it is. And you've been down there on the bottom and looking out for a friend. Here I am. There are many ways legends are born. The Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, Jack the Ripper, UFOs. These are legends rooted in fear. Something invisible, something powerful. Something that moves in the dark and leaves us change forever. Sidebar, I don't know if it's correlation or causation, but there seem to have been no UFO abductions since the introduction of the iPhone. The excuse for years has always been, we didn't have a camera, or we were too drunk. But now everyone has a camera all the time. They take pictures of everything, their cats, their desserts, drunk or sober, even in Nepal, even in Louisiana. People don't have to keep their eyes to the skies anymore, not when they have Instagram. Sometimes a lack of evidence is all the evidence we need. Fear is easier to find than transcendence. The only place you can regularly find transcendence is in an ice cream store. Fear is everywhere. Fear shapes our world from virus protection on your computer to seatbelts in your car. California leads the world in fear, not only with the production of superhero films in which the world and occasionally the universe is faced with annihilation, but the state of California has come to the conclusion that life is dangerous to your health. There are warnings on everything, and not just cigarettes, alcohol, or lead-based paints like in the old days. There are warnings on meat, smoked meat, fish, coffee, 
pickles, sugar, sugar substitutes, indoor parking, staying at hotels, wood, anything that cleans anything, tap water, and of course, plastic. If you don't outlaw straws, you're just sitting on a keg of dynamite. It's only natural that it was in California that I met Budge. When I came out to Los Angeles in 1976, Budge was a legend. He was a writer, a comedian, an actor, but it seemed like no one ever saw him in person. He was a rumor, a phantom. Budge created a character called Sam Diego. Sam Diego was a vagabond, a hitchhiker, a stray. He had an innocence about him that was offset by his single-minded determination to take whatever he wanted. Sam Diego was the embodiment of self-destruction in a hilarious, humble, yet terrifying package. Beth and I never met him. He was a spirit that only lived at night. Budge was one of the first people we heard about that made it big. He was going to be a star on cable television on the new Sam Diego show, which was an off-kilter game show with his comic character as the MC. They paid him a huge lump sum of $50,000 to shoot the first few shows. Now, that's a fortune in a world where rent for an apartment is only $200 a month, and you could buy a bag of marijuana for only $10. Beth and I could only dream about that kind of success. I was doing children's theater for $240 a week. Beth was working at a dog food factory for minimum wage. So... When we got the phone call one afternoon that a friend of ours knew a friend of Budge's who knew the producer of the Sam Diego show and did Beth and I want to be contestants, the winner would get a prize of $500. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yes, 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 yes. This is too exciting. We would meet the elusive legend. We would be on a television show, which would be something legitimate we could put on our resumes. And we could possibly win $500. We arrived at the studio the night of the show. We were ushered into the green room while the audience was being seated. Beth and I were given releases to sign. And then the man himself came into the green room. I was surprised by his unassuming appearance. Budge reminded me of Mr. Mixipitlick in the Superman comics, except Budge was taller and he had a large mustache. It was the mustache that disturbed me. It didn't fit his head. It made his eyes look beadier and his nose look bigger than they were. He didn't look like a rising star in the comedy world. Budge looked more like an extra on Gunsmoke, maybe a cattle rustler. Hey, hey, kids, said Budge as he sat down. I see you got the paperwork. Just sign it. Says you won't sue us no matter what we do to you. I reacted with a bit of panic, which made Budge light up with the light. Just kidding. Not going to do anything to you. (laughs) At least not yet. His smile turned demonic. We're just going to play a little game, a little trivia game about the Beatles. You ever heard of them? The Beatles? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I have. I'd love them. I'd love them. Well, good, good. Calm down. Save it for the show, son. Now, don't forget to sign the release. And use your legal names. Don't put down John Wilkes Booth or Puss in Boots. We'll kick you right off the show. Hey, just kidding, just kidding. No, we need you. Otherwise, we don't have enough contestants. And now, if you'll excuse me, I got to go make those folks laugh. Budge left the green room. We could hear his introduction and the audience applause. He started telling jokes. I couldn't make out the words through the closed doors, but we could hear the laughter. 
Beth and I were called to the set. It was time for the trivia contest and the cash prize. We were facing off against two other couples. The first question went to couple number one. Budge asked, What town in England did the Beatles hail from? Um, that would be Liverpool, Sam. Well, let's check the Beatles' encyclopedia. Budge opened a comic book and pretended to look. Yes, the answer is Liverpool! Couple number one started jumping up and down, and I was thinking, oh, so you didn't grow up on Mars. Congratulations. Budge picked the next question. Couple number two. The bass player for the Beatles was A, John, B, Paul, or C, Fritz. Uh, The answer is B, Paul. Are you sure you don't want to change that answer? No. Fritz. Fritz going once. Fritz going twice. No? You are correct. Paul was their bass player. Couple number three. My stomach was filled with butterflies. So this is to you, Beth, and Fritz. Uh, Stephen, Sam. My name is Stephen. Oh, sorry, Stephen. I thought Fritz was a good answer. Didn't you? Yes. Is that our question? No. The question is, what town in Germany did the Beatles play in regularly before they were famous, and what name did they play under? Beth looked at me in a panic. Really? I said to Budge. I beg your pardon? Is that the real question? You have a problem with my questions, Fritz? It's Stephen, and it seems like that question is a little harder than the other questions. I just want everything to be fair. Do I take it you don't know the answer to the question? No, the answer is Hamburg and the Silver Beetles, but that question is harder than Liverpool. Stephen, have you ever been on a television game show before? Uh, no, sir. One of the rules is you don't criticize the MC. Your answer was correct, but you have complained, and so you get a penalty question, and it could only be answered by the young lady. Beth again looked in a panic, and the audience laughed. For no money, but a chance to play in the finals. The Beatles drummer was named, Beth blurted out, Ringo, Ringo, did I get it right? You got the name right, but that wasn't the question said Budge. Now, don't interrupt me or you will be disqualified. The Beatles drummer was, now don't interrupt, don't say anything. Beth nodded silently. The Beatles drummer was named Ringo because, don't say anything, be quiet. It was his habit to wear rings. The question for a pass to the final round, on what part of his body did Ringo wear his ring? Beth looked at me in a panic. Budge said, take your time. You have five seconds. His finger? Yes, you are correct. You and Fritz move on to the final round and a chance to win $500. In the final round, we faced off against couple number two. Budge gave each of us a chalkboard and a piece of chalk. Couples for $500. Budge pulled up a school lunchbox with a picture of the Fab Four on it contestants. This is an original Beatles lunchbox from 1964, complete with thermos. Budge opened the lunchbox and pulled out the thermos and showed the audience. The couple that gets closest to the actual price of this lunchbox today wins $500. Write your answers on your chalkboard. Bill and Sandy, um, $25. Is that your answer? 
asked Budge. Yes, $25? Well, write it on your chalkboard so it's official. Bill wrote $25. Beth and Stephen, your answer. Beth looked at me with no clue. I stepped forward. Sam, there is no way an original Beatles lunchbox would sell for $25. I say $1,500. Budge did a spit take drinking his coffee. $1,500? Are you kidding? Oh, sorry. Is that your final guess? Yes, $1,500. And I wrote $1,500 on our chalkboard. Stephen, you are correct! There is no way this lunchbox would cost $25. We got it for 75 cents at a junk store in Santa Monica. Bill and Sandy, you are the closest. You win the $500. Thank you, couples, for playing. After the show, Budge came over to console us. What is the matter with you, Stephen? (laughs) $1,500? Are you high? We're on cable. This is the San Diego show. (laughs) Man, we don't have that kind of jack. $1,500 for a Beatles lunchbox. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious, man. Oh, you cracked me up. See you around. As Beth and I left the studio, we turned to wave goodbye to Budge, who was surrounded by his fans. Budge looked up with a huge, goofy smile and returned a mock salute. I was wrong about Budge. Looking like a cattle rustler on Gunsmoke? No, it was his eyes. They had too much intelligence and too much mischief. That's when I saw who he really reminded me of. With a triangular hat and lederhosen, he was the spitting image of one of the villagers in a Frankenstein movie. A villager in search of a torch. It takes one to know one, baby, I know how you feel. You've got your hunger and some problems that are real. And you're dealing with some demons who are driving you insane. And I've seen them drag you screaming down the hallways in your brain. You got loaded again. Ain't you handsome with your eyes? Nothing matters. Taste the feeling till you die. The Sam Diego Show was the first TV appearance Beth and I made in Los Angeles, and I think it turned out to be our only appearance together. We did put it on our respective resumes. I eventually took it off mine when I got a paying job. Beth became a writer and won the Pulitzer Prize for drama. After that, she didn't need a resume. Footnote. There is something cosmic about a resume. You spend so much energy trying to put together something that can impress, something that says, I belong here. But the real tell that you belong is that you have no resume at all. Meeting Budge was our only brush with fame, we thought. Several weeks later, Budge came over to our house on Hayworth with his friend, who was the friend of the producer, the friend of my friend, which is how Beth and I got on the show in the first place. Budge's friend was a screenwriter who sold marijuana to make a living. Beth went to the kitchen to get our guests beer and chips for refreshments. Budge's friend went to assist and I was left in the living room with the legend. So, pal, hope you had fun on the show. 
Yeah, Beth and I were really excited to be there and to meet you. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that's a thrill. I just wish we could have won. Yeah, so did I, but you were so incredibly stupid. My hands were tied. Yeah, so you got a couple hundred bucks you could lend me? What? I'm having a bit of a shortfall, and there's a young lady I was hoping to impress with a nice dinner. I will pay you back. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't have any money. I do children's theater. I thought you were rich. Well, you know what they say about money. It's easier to spend than to make. I think they say that. If they don't, they should. They told me you got 50 grand for your show. I did. But cocaine is a terrible drug, Stephen. Expensive. How much did you spend on cocaine? 50 grand. All of it? Well, yeah, I thought it would be funny. I thought the writers would appreciate it. I bought 50 grand worth of coke and put it in a big jar in the writer's room. I hoped it would be inspirational. It turned out not to be the case. We blew it in a week. Literally. How much cocaine do you get for $50,000? Budge considered and then imagined a glass jar in front of him about 10 to 12 inches high, about yay big. Wow. Yeah. It was a beautiful sight when the jar was full, but looked sadder and sadder over the week. At the end, we were licking our fingers, sticking them in there like the bottom of a bowl of Doritos. Pitiful. Don't waste your money on drugs, Stephen. I won't. So, you have a couple hundred dollars? I I forgot what you said. I I said no. I'm sorry. Beth and Ron came back in the room with beer and chips. Sidebar. Being a creature of impulse was Budge's undoing, as well as his charm. Impulse often comes with an innocence that's hard not to forgive. When our son Robert was a very little boy, maybe three or four years old, He was being punished for throwing rocks at basically anything that moved. He said all he wanted was a second chance. Ann and I gave it to him. We let him continue to play outside, and then he started throwing rocks again, and this time we sent him to his room. Robert cried hard and pleaded, Please, please, all I need is another second chance. Robert's plea was profound. Another second chance is what we all feel we need, And we know we don't always deserve. In this way, Budge became something of a holy figure. By accepting his impulsiveness, we are bartering for our own forgiveness by proxy. At one of our parties on Hayworth, Budge was an unexpected guest. He came around midnight after doing comedy at a club. Hey, kids, I heard you had a party going on. I hope it's not too late. I have a little gift for you. Budge pulled out a huge bottle of Jack Daniels. The best for the best. Little Jack, in appreciation for your hospitality the other day. And Stephen, glad you didn't loan me any money. Just would have spent it. I looked at the bottle in disbelief. Thank you, Budge. We love Jack Daniels. I mean, this is so generous. Come on in, please. The party is still partying. No, 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 no. Got to go get my beauty sleep. I just wanted you kids to know that I think you're the bee's knees. Just save that to toast a special occasion. Enjoy. Thank you, Budge. Thank you. Night, night. Budge tipped the brim of his hat and vanished into the darkness. 
I put the Jack Daniels back on a counter in the kitchen so the party goers would know it was off limits. I returned to the living room and restacked the Girard turntable with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Good music that sends out the subliminal message that it's time to go to bed. Around 2 a.m., the last of the partygoers finally got the subliminal message and were saying their goodbyes when Beth and I heard a noise in the kitchen. It sounded like someone dropped a suitcase filled with anvils on the floor. What was that, I said. I don't know, said Beth. Is someone breaking in? Stay here. I'll check. I ran back to the kitchen, and to my shock, There was Budge lying on the floor, holding the bottle of Jack Daniels, now over half empty. Don't mind me, I came in the back way, said Budge. Budge, was that our Jack Daniels? Technically, yes. It depends on how you measure such things. You see, I was on my way out to my car, and I realized I needed a drink. Jack Daniels is my whiskey of choice, and I remember that you had a bottle and a generous spirit. So I came back. Through the back door. Yes, whenever possible, Stephen. In exchange for letting me drink your whiskey, may I give you some of the fruits of my wisdom? Sure, Budge. In life, there will probably be times when you will want to get extremely drunk, like I am now. And there's a secret on how to do it. There is? Yes. Pretend you're someone else doing something else. Wait, pretend you're someone else? Yes, yes, doing something else. You you see, me, in this case, gave you a very lovely gift. The bottle of Jack Daniels, I said. Yes, yes. And then I left to go home, but I wanted a drink. So I pretended I was someone else. And I came back to your party through the back door. Now, that is something that I, Budge, wouldn't do. But being someone else, I was able to do it. And I started drinking. After I drank, what, what is half the bottle, I realized I was very drunk and I should stop. But I didn't want to. So I pretended I was doing something other than drinking whiskey and continued as if it were my first drink. I knew you wouldn't deny me. You offered me a drink before I left. I just took you up on your offer while you were in absentia. So you pretend you are someone else doing something else. Yes, said Budge as he began to gently drift off into slumber. That is the secret to endurance, to breaking old habits and finding new ones. It's the only way to defy expectations. And in our business, pal, if you're not defying, you're frying. I love you guys. I'm going to go to sleep for a little bit now, and I'll just stay on the floor if you don't mind. Sure, Budge. Do you want a blanket or something? No, 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 no. My temperature is just right. Thank you. And where is the head in case I need to puke? Uh, Through that door is the bathroom. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks, Stephen. Hell of a party. I turned out the lights and went to bed. In the morning, I went to check on our guest and any potential awfulness that awaited me in the kitchen. But Budge was gone, and the bottle of Jack Daniels was empty. It's one of the first rules of the road. Never be the last guest at a party. And if you are, make sure they never see you go. 
The Creature of Impulse, a series of stories by actor Stephen Tobolowsky. You are listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, do you ever feel like there's something about Los Angeles specifically that might cater to ultra-hedonistic, unstable people? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, David, that's why I'm here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think it is what a dear friend of mine once used to told me used to told me that's so bad uh, <laughs> it's the pandemic brain but yeah. she used to say Stephen it's the gold rush it's the one place where the gold rush exists and I used to think of it in more uh, I guess non-material terms it was the place where you came to make your dreams come true if you wanted to create and I don't know if that part of it was true but that's what brought me here darn it all right, Stephen. Well, uh, we appreciate you sharing your experiences with us. And if people want to catch more of your experiences, how can they do that in video form? I'm thinking it would be at YouTube, youtube.tobofiles.com. Is that correct, David? No, that's, that's not correct. That is not <laughs> the right address. I, I guess it would be youtube.tobofiles.com. Oh, YouTube.com. <laughs> YouTube.com at Tobofiles.net. No. I mean, I mean, what people uh, listening don't know is that immediately before we started recording this segment, I said to Steven, make sure you say YouTube.com slash Tobofiles, okay? And he said, yep, that's Yeah, I got no it. Problem. Okay, who I got you, it. Who do you think I am, David? I've worked with Christopher Nolan and Ridley Scott. <laughs> YouTube. It, we're at youtube.com slash Tobofiles. Very good. <sighs> Very good, Tobo. Nailed it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, us having accomplished what we were going to accomplish today, let's wrap this up. Thanks for listening to the Tobolowski Files. This episode of the podcast was powered by Simplecast. Check out simplecast.com for a, a great way to start or manage your podcast. And uh, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. We'll see you next week. Adios. Adios.